I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Finding a sound more satisfying than hearing a broadhead hit its mark in the early fall is a hard sound to beat in the woods. The question that we're all dying to know the answer to is just exactly what all goes into making sure that an arrow lands where it was intended in the first place. The use of a bow and arrow dates back to the early stone ages and has been used not only as a hunting tool, but as an instrument of war all throughout history. This week, we're joined by Rick, the owner of Central Florida Archery, to talk about the science behind the string and the method to the madness that is modern archery as a hunter and as a sport. So, Rick, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Central Florida Archery. Well, um, Central Florida Archery started uh, approximately 2012. We did, uh, I started by training, it's mostly training. We did Olympic archery for the schools, OAS, Olympic Archery Schools Program. Um, initially started the business because the location that I was shooting at, at the time uh, shut down their archery range and they opened the gun range because guns make guns and bullets make more money than archery and bows or bows and arrows at least so um, I started this place and before it was just for myself really to shoot behind the, this location and more and more individuals started coming out wanting to use the range with me ended up buying more targets putting more targets out and ended up becoming a business built a 3D range and tower and everything and it started from there you know, that, that's something I've noticed, too, is that the archery ranges are hard to find. I remember when, you know, Jordan yeah. and I were kids, we used to go out with our dad once a week. About in this time of year, there used to be a walk-through 3D range not far from here. I think yeah. some of my fondest memories came from that range, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's laughing because he knows exactly what I'm talking about, too. <laughs> they had that pig that was like, you pulled a cord, didn't you? Yeah. It was on, like, a trail, and you pulled a cord to make the, the pig go across, the like, the rail. And I just had some little kid's bow, and I shot and somehow managed to hit it right in the ball sack. There you go. And I just, I was so excited that I'd hit it in the ball sack. Well, even before that, when uh, Warren and Sweat was around, um, they annually they had a bow shoot, and uh, it was, I think it was Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, I remember doing that. And uh, Warren and Sweat put it on, and it was a 3D archery. And you talk about some shots. People would complain, but people would come from all over the place. And it was it was set up. We would go out the day before and set up all the targets. And uh, the owner of Warren and Sweat at the time, um, he made some shots that were just – it was ridiculous to even shoot at. Mm. But it – people would complain, oh, I'd never shoot that in the woods. I'd never shoot – well, you, you might not shoot it in the woods, but – you also might shoot it in the woods. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so it was It was pretty cool. It was There were some tough shots, but it was a lot of fun. A mm. lot of fun. I'm working on trying to get a 3D range up now as well. Also a walkthrough. Because they, there's, to me, it's more, it's more than just having a place for hunters to come and shoot. They come out and they practice, especially before hunting season. Right. And if they are able to do a kill shot instead of a winning shot because they practiced on my range... That animal is not going to suffer. That's right. Because killing an animal and eating it is obviously good, but you don't want to maim them. You don't want to wound them. And there's too many individuals that are sold out by the commercials and whatever it is that if you have this in your hand, you're going to kill something. No, it doesn't work like that. 
Well, I can tell you this. If you get a walkthrough 3D range set up, we'd love to come out there and host an event. Yeah, Lots of people gathered around. Because that was something I actually looked at earlier in the summer. We t- kind of tossed around the idea amongst us here in the crew, but we couldn't find a range where it wasn't you know stationary targets. Yeah. You're standing in one spot shooting at targets at different ranges, which wasn't really what I had envisioned, so it just kind of got walkthrough is Walkthrough is more realistic. you got to get right. the Absolutely. guy to... Because we, we stalk, most of our hunting in Africa is stalking. So if you stalk and you are, have a certain amount of fatigue in your system when you shoot, you still need to be able to be able to hit what you shoot at. If you're standing in one spot and you're shooting 10, 15, 20, and 35 yards, whatever it is, it, that's target shooting. That's not hunting at all. Well, the thing, too, is when you have, a lot of times you have those walk-through ranges, you're, you're also looking at shooting between trees or mm-hmm. stuff you're actually going to encounter in the woods versus standing stationary shooting at targets put up across Correct. the field yeah no yeah. it doesn't work like that it's very important that people get a scenario where they are in the exact same position and if we move the targets on a daily basis one day it's here the next day it's there differences and you don't give them the distances but well, that's how you train individuals to hunt accurately um and then you feel a lot better about it when they leave but the thing is after after 2008 the financial crisis the bow shops closed at a phenomenal rate, almost oh, yeah. all of them. And then I stayed open because I had a range, and I pretty much stayed open because I promised my customers I wouldn't close. The business does not, nobody makes money doing archery. You have to have it in your blood, or you have to let it go. And if you have a range and a bow shop where you can do the pro, pro shop tuning work, if you have an actual bow tech, which <laughs> there's many out there that, but anyway, if you have a real bow tech and you, the guy can tune the bow properly, I've found that 90% of the problems archers have is actually not to do with them. It's actually the bow. And if you can fix that and you can take them into the range and give them one class and t- teach them perfect form, perfect form will result in gold, always. It'll be result in a kill shot. Uh, there's many ways to get there, but that's the way it should be done. And since 2008, the industry has been going down and bow shops been closing down, closing down, closing down. I ended up being the last one in Central Florida and now this left open that's even got a range. So... I would like to get more people inside in, involved in it and more school children. Some of the schools now have archery programs where they do uh, Olympic archery in schools program, which is great. Yeah. But I want to cover the whole field with ha- archers as well, including Atlanta and Tomahawk. We do that too. I would say I know in uh, at like middle school age, uh, I was in the 4-H and I did archery with 4-H. Yeah, exactly. The, the, um, and the the training that they do should be NTS Olympic style training. The stance that I will teach an Olympian on my range to shoot an accurate arrow at at a two-inch dot at 77 yards, which is 70 meters, that stance is the exact same I'm going to teach a hunter standing in a tree stand or on the ground because it's pretty much all biomechanical shooting. So if you do biomechanical properly, you're probably going to hit what you shoot at if your bow is tuned right. You know, so... There's a lot of overlaps, a lot of overlaps. And most of my compound students, um, I actually teach with recurve in the first first half hour of the class, they shoot a recurve, no sights. It teaches that balance in your in your bow hand. And then they pick up a r- compound bow that's tuned properly and they drive tacks with it. And, oh boy, well, it's not that hard. You know? So do you tune bows as well? or Yes, yeah, okay. tune a bow, re- rebuild them. All the time, older bows, new bows. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter. Can we back up a second? Earlier, you mentioned Adelaide and Tomahawk. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I've got an atlatl on the other side of the garage. My interest level just went through the roof. Yeah. Atlatl and tomahawk. Atlatl is actually a weapon. It's my opinion, but it was way ahead of its time. But, you know, you you try and attack a mammoth with 15 guys in spears, and you're going to lose four of them in the process, but you're going to get the mammoth. If the spears or the guys? The originally with spears. Are you going to lose, lose the spears the or are you going to lose the guys? The guys. <laughs> yeah. the guys. The mammoth okay. swings his tusk once and four guys <laughs> then come home. Yeah. And then they figured out, well, if we can do it from 20 yards away, we've got time to run. So <laughs> they, developed the <laughs> they developed the atlatl, which ended up being an incredibly deadly weapon. Right, yeah. Deadly. And then they developed tips that they actually slide onto these atlatl darts. And uh, the atlatl will go in and the tip will break off specifically for their re- and let them run so that they get cut up while they're running. So the, 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 the technology was ahead of its time, way ahead of its time. Hmm. And you're, you're thinking about developing an atlatl? We already teach that. We already teach that. Atlatl and tomahawk. Oh. So we need to go for some atlatl courses because William can't throw I'm his worth of darn. So <laughs> you can look atlatl at and tomahawk. <laughs> you can look at talking about just atlatl. Yeah. We, we can conclude the podcast now. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you ready for YouTube when we kill a hog with a tomahawk? About a year ago, I, f- I threw some tomahawks one morning for Fox 35, uh, 35 in the morning for the, the show. Um, they came to my property that I had at the time and they did a program then. And I went to the studio and I attempted to uh, train some of the anchors how to throw a tomahawk. Um, well, it, they you can watch the video, but um, that was very interesting. <laughs> Let's say <laughs> it was very interesting, but yeah, tomahawk, tomahawk and atlatl are deadly weapons. That people, that, if you know how to use those, um, you can put an atlatl through a car. I mean, it's wow. It can be very. You can buy modern ones these days with carbon fiber. That's what I have. Yeah. We we use the old handmade river reed ones with stone flint flint nap. One of the gentlemen that's a annual member of mine comes there and he sharpens his own, he makes his own arrow tips and flints them out of all different kinds of stone, and he throws them at trees and at targets, and he's pretty good at it actually. Hmm. I don't want to get too far off because we're really here to talk about archery, but one last question on the atlatls is. Um, as far as actually using those to hunt in Florida, is that covered under archery season or is that a prohibited? Is one of those things that there's not necessarily a regulation saying that you can or cannot use it? What's the what's the rules on that? I honestly do not know, but I I would assume it's going to fall into archery season. Most states <clears throat> most states consider it a spear, and you can't use it to take game species. Um, I'm pretty sure, and don't quote me on this, that you can use it in Florida to kill hogs, which is the case sure. in most states. I would bet you, yeah, I would bet you could use it to kill hogs. Yeah, but yeah. you can't use it to kill yeah. deer. Uh, there's very few states that will actually allow you to use a spear or because a, a, that level is considered a spear chucking device. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so it actually falls under the category of a spear, not archery. What I learned about Atlanta is don't don't put power behind it. It's like a golf swing. You just swing it. Don't worry about it. Just swing it. Just move your hand. The stick will do the rest. You try hmm. and put power behind it, you'll throw that at 150 yards. That thing will go. <laughs> yeah. I have quite the opposite experience. I put power behind it, and it goes about 10 feet. <laughs> yeah. <But laughs> well, so you can't throw it worth a damn. Tell me, why can't I just go buy a bow and some arrows and, and go hunting? Yeah, that's a. I, I get that often. Um 
you could actually do that. You never, never, you're probably going to have to turn vegetarian. But what happens <laughs> in the end? Uh, Bo is custom set up for in order for an individual to be accurate. There's a certain form that you have to with the way to stand, and you have to touch the tip of your nose, corner of your mouth. It's all part of biomechanical shooting, and it's basically a way of cheating. But you're actually anchoring on your face and everybody's arm is not the same. You, for instance, have a 28 and a half inch draw length. He has 28, he's about 27, he's about 30 draw length. So you have to set the bow up at for the person's draw length to begin with and then find out what poundage they can draw comfortably so you can adjust the bow to that poundage. You have to set the peep sight once you're in your perfect anchor here, whether you use a thumb release or an index, if you're in the perfect anchor point, you don't want to be looking for a peep sight. So you have to draw the bow, close the eyes, open it, and if you don't see a full moon in your peep sight, then I adjust the peep sight until you do. And then we go out to the range and we set your sights. So because hunting is not target shooting, so I want to make sure everything is good. You are in a ground blind or you're roaming or however you're hunting. If the, you see the deer before he sees you, you've got a small window that you could use. Depending if you read the deer correctly, there's, that's another op, a whole other story. But you pretty much set the bow up for the person. So that your bow, he could shoot your bow if he's going to shoot at an elephant, something big. But you can't have a bow for a 26-inch uh, draw length person and a 29-inch draw it because the, he won't be able to anchor. He's going to float in the air in front. And vice versa. You're 26 inches and somebody gives you a bow that's set up at 29 and you're going to draw past your ear, you won't be able to find the peep sight. Plus, you can't get into the lid off of the bow. Yeah, but you, if you do that, you're you're messing up my excuse for missing. <laughs> well, <laughs> you I, might I couldn't see it in my peep sight. Correct. Yeah. You, this, <laughs> you're bow, right. You're exactly right, though. A bow is a custom setup per, for a person. So, when you talk about peep sights, I had a, you know, there's a lot that's come out with peep sights. When I first started shooting, like, my bow now has a, like a rubber cord yeah. between the peep sight and, and the, the cable and the cable. Yeah. But then now they have peep sights that don't have that free float, better. free float. So, I mean, they're better, better. Okay. Both have, you know, I'm saying they're better because it's, 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 it doesn't affect the speed. Now we got to get something clear. Speed only kills in vehicles. It doesn't kill in archery. Kinetic energy kills in archery. So, what the tube does, as well as maybe slow the string down a little bit, it also makes it quieter. So there is some advantages to using that. If it's a brand new string and you're going to go on a hunt now, you would probably want to use a tube because as the string settles, the new string settles in, it turns. You know, uh, Your boater can set it up that it's nice and square and you go to your hunting camp and you shoot 50, 60 arrows practicing and suddenly your peep sight starts changing because your string is settling in. Now what do you do? So you got to go get your peep sight reset. You have to have it reset or you can move your D-loop. Don't try and just twist the peep. You move your D-loop in the same direction as your peep. And for that, for that scenario, you can use that for now. But later, you want to put the bow in a press and do a string twist on it to bring that peep back. So there's, that's another part of the setup. So you go into a, shall I just say, big box store, which is a money exchange system, and you give them $500 or $600, and they're going to give you a piece of equipment and send you on your way. Um, they don't, they definitely, well, they're not going to tell you the truth. They're going to, if you can afford a $200 site, they're going to sell you a $200 site. A $50 site would do the same thing, but here we go. So 
you have to be most people that buy don't know what they're buying to begin with so they go into these stores and these big box stores oh this guy's he's wearing a luminox watch oh well you know he's gonna afford a thousand dollar bow and that's what happens you come into my shop and there's a good chance but there's a 50 50 chance i'm going to talk you out of buying a new bow there's a very very good chance i'll talk you out of it because i want you to have two bows number one i have you have the backup bow which is your first bow and then your second bow but you're going to learn how to shoot the bow first and then you can buy, or you can come with a used bow, and I can try and see if I can set it up. But you have to custom fit the bow to a person. So you just go into a big box store, and they sell you the what you need. Uh, cut your arrows, which is a bad idea. but And then they send you off. Now you go to a range, or you go and you miss your deer. You don't know how to... Buying a bow and getting it set up is one thing. No, learning how to hunt with it is a whole different. Learning how to read the deer is a different thing as well. You can be a a com professional compound target shooter and you can't hit the broadside of a bar in the bush. There's a reason for that. So there's a lot to it. Archery is an incredibly in interesting but highly scientific game now. It's completely changed. So I've heard you say more than once to not cut an arrow. Yeah, I know. So, so what's the science behind not cutting an arrow? So here's what happens. Arrows are, for the most part, most of the manufacturing companies will manufacture an arrow with a certain spine. Sometimes they call it grain. Sometimes they call it weight. It doesn't matter. The, the thing is this. The spine is based on the flexibility of the arrow. So they support an arrow on the front, right before the tip, and right before the knock in the back. And they, it's on in front of, let's just say it's a ruler. It's on zero. And they hang a one-pound weight in the center, and that arrow will deflect. Now, if the arrow deflects 0.35 of an inch... It's a 350 spine arrow. And what that does, what that means is the arrow will flex at 0.35 of an inch, so that means you're probably going to shoot that arrow out of a 70-pound bow. If it's a 250, the smaller the number, the less the deflection. That means the arrow is stiffer, correct? It's also stiffer because there's more carbon in there, so it's, it will be heavier. But you can always shoot an arrow that's too stiff. Like you can shoot a 250 spine arrow out of a 40-pound bow, not a problem. It will fly a little bit like a stick. You know, but it won't. But if you take an 80 pound compound bow and you shoot a 700 spine arrow out of that, you're going to find one half of it in your arm and the other half in a tree because it'll snap. The arrow will actually overflex right in the bow because the moment you pull the trigger or release the string in a recurve case, all that energy, that potential energy is now turned kinetic and it's on that arrow and it's trying to push that 100 grain tip out of the way. And there's a arrow in the middle that's bending so what they do is now you go to the big box stores and what that arrow cutting is is redundancy that's what it is so you buy an arrow that's 32 inches long or 31 whichever full size arrow at 350 spine so let's say i give you a stick a dowel that's six foot long and you bend it and then i cut that dowel in half and i give it to you again which one is stiffer the, the one shorter you one cut. you cut so if you cut an arrow, you're going to change the spine on that arrow. Now, they give you about two inches on odds or ends uh, that you can still cut on it, and it won't affect the spine too much. But that's all based on a 100-grain point. You're going to go hog hunting. I'm probably going to put a 125 in your, in your arrow because you want kinetic energy to get through those bones, right? Yeah. So now they sell you a 350 spine arrow. They cut it to 27 inches in your case. Now you've suddenly got an arrow that's probably closer to 300 spine 
It's a little too stiff for your bow, but you can still hit that football at 30 yards, which we will talk about now. So you can still hit it. The issue is, if you shoot through the deer or you miss the deer and you hit a rock and you break it, I can cut the arrow off and I can fix it for you. That, if it's full length. But now it's custom cut. What do you do? Throw it away. Start Throw it away. away. Yeah. Buy a new one. Buy a new <clears throat> arrow, yeah. $9 a piece for a very good quality, cheaper lower end arrow. Yeah, because I, you go to most big box tours too, because you know most people are going to go to a box tour. You're just going to buy a whole case. Correct. And then you're spending more than $9 an arrow. Correct. Yeah, but you're going to pay a really good quality arrow, uh, FMJ, all these. It's a dual core aluminum carbon. Will cost you in the vicinity of $200 a dozen. If it's cut custom, you're going to end up buying another dozen within that year. If you buy them from me or from a, not necessarily from my business, all I'm saying, if you buy a full length arrow and you shoot it and you hit the rock and you cut an inch off, you can reset the insert and you can have that arrow again. And it's not going to be that much difference in weight and in vertical hit point, maybe a quarter inch. So you can still hit the football at 30 yards. And that statement is important. So, a lot of people don't understand it. If you want to hit a two-inch dot at 70 yards like a competitive shooter consistently, we have to spine the arrow obviously correctly. We have to have a clicker or a device on you if it's a recurve. There's, that's a lot of science goes into that. If a hunter is hunting in Oklahoma and he's forgot his arrows at home and he goes to the store on the side of the road there and they sell and he shoots a 70-pound bow but they only have 250 spine arrows, he can use those. You can buy that. If the arrow flies like this and it's four inches too long and it kills the deer, deer's not going to complain because the arrow's too long and it was too stiff. Because uh, uh, the kill zone on most deer is the size of a football. If you can hit that, you're going to kill the deer. Now, don't go buy a 700 or 800 spine arrow from the side road business because you're going to break it and put it in your arm. So that's why it all depends. Archery is depending on what the person wants to do. You would come to me and you want to buy, buy a bow from me. I'm going to try and find out what exactly is it that you're trying to do here before I sell you a bow. And if I can't sell you the bow, it's unlikely. But if I don't have the information, I will not sell you the bow. But if you want to tell me I'm going to become a world championship shooter, I'm taking you this direction. Or uh, I would just want to hunt, I'm taking you this direction. Or my son is now coming to the game, I'm taking you that direction. The, so the best, the best buck for your, you know, the best bow for your buck is what I'm going to work with but I want to know exactly what it is you're trying to do. And you get individuals that hunt and shoot target. They have two bows. In most cases, if it's like flat, they'll have a 48-inch axle-to-axle and they'll have a, a 27 for the hunting, you know. It's the same thing with fishing poles. Longer axle-to-axle cast better. Fishing pole, same thing. Short one will cast here. So you're going to analyze what the guy wants to do. So you're going to a big box store and they're going to sell you a bow. That's it. They're going to sell you a bow. They're going to put arrow rest on there and everything that they say you need. What do you know? You're going to buy it, right? You walk out there paying what eight, nine hundred dollars, sometimes as high as a thousand, for an entry level or an intermediate level bow, instead of going to a professional place that will give you the advice. And the reason also behind that is a lot of professional places were not as honest as they should have been. So now the people walk into my shop sometimes, and I can see their eyes like, oh boy, what's going to happen to me now? So on the subject of buying a bow, what are some of the, you know, if, if I'm going to Facebook Marketplace tonight and I'm looking to buy a used bow, what are some of the red flags that I should look for? When on, a, on a used bow, there could be a bunch. Depending on the time of year. 
If you're going to buy a boat close to November, you got a, there's a chance you're going to buy a fairly good boat. Because there are still this large major, uh, amount of guys that want to sell their bow that they bought in November in November. Because uh, too many people believe that technology will make you better. It doesn't. But so they all sell their bows right before November to get as much money as I can so, to buy the new kid on the block. So that's, you know. But things you have to look for is if it's possible to take the bow to a bow shop before you pay the person, that'll be your best option. Because they can flex the bow, you can put it on a press, we can press it, we can see how does it flex, does it have cracks in the limbs, is the bearings bad on the, on the two cams, there could be many things that could be wrong, there could be nothing wrong. In a lot of cases, in the majority, there's nothing wrong, you know, so, and it depends on the price. Um, value is perception, it really is perception. So yeah, how I do I? Oh, go ahead. I, th I think a lot of people do buy just because it's new. Correct. It's new technology. They think, well, oh, this is uh, it's, it's better. Um, yeah. The j it costs more. It's better. Uh, it it just but. Yeah, and it's <clears throat> and it's not the case. No, and I, and I was told a long time ago that you need to look when you're buying a boat. You need to look at the manufacturer. How how long have they been in business? Are they going to stand behind what they're selling? Call them. Yep. Pick up the phone and call them. If they answer the phone, buy their bow. If you answer, if you get into an uh, automated system maze, put the phone down. Because in the end of the day, like I said in the beginning, you don't make money in this business at all. Anybody that opens an archery business. <laughs> anyway. You, if you don't like teachers and police. They don't do it because no, they're, for the, they're not doing it for the money. It's a passion. Yeah. And if you don't, if you tell the customer the truth based on what your supplier has said and that doesn't work out, you're probably never going to see that customer again because you're the face of that company. Right. If you pick up the phone and you call Matthews, I'm a Matthews dealer. I'm a dealer for almost every bow company out there because I've been in business so long and everybody else closed. So, you know, here I am. But the phone may ring once when you call them and they will answer it. And you ask for the technical guy. If he doesn't answer immediately, which is unlikely but if he doesn't he's going to call it back in 10 minutes that's the guy you want to buy a bow from because i'm going to call him uh, to ask him for your 15 year old matthews that bent a cam when you dropped it out of a tree stand and they'll say well if we don't have a cam we will make you one but that's the kind of people you want to deal with you're going to hand over a thousand dollars you can expect service after the sale which in my case is way more important than the initial price on the boat but you want service and if you're not going to get that from a company A or company B, then buy from them. One so, of the things I picked up from this is um, throughout your entire discussion, the end result of what you're trying to accomplish, whether it's to tip over an animal or drive pins, overwhelmingly is process Absolutely. versus product. And, and I've noticed that from when you were discussing um, tuning the bow. Now you're even talking about it in terms of follow-up after a purchase, mm -hmm. uh, the relationship with a professional. It's That's all about very process. important. The relationship with your bow shop is very important because he's the link to the manufacturer. And again, not to... I've, I've been... Uh, there's two companies or three companies whose bows I carry in stock right now. It's Matthews, Obsession, and Martin. And because they answer the phone and they give you service. So... 
Number those are the very important to me. Then it's very important to me that your bow is set up correctly, so that you n can hit what you shoot at. Then the, you know what you're doing, and if it means giving you a class, that's fine too. But in the end of the day, it's a very long process, and if you have a good relationship with your bow shop, they will bend backwards to keep you in, as a customer. But at the same time, you will tell four people. An upset individual will tell 44 people. No doubt. So you, that relationship is very important. So coming back to buying a used bow, because we, we kind of talked about strings a little bit. If I'm going to buy a used bow, how, how do I know if the strings are bad on it? First, you want to look at, and uh, like I said, pro, uh, your bow shop will be a good idea. But if you don't have a bow shop available at the time, see if you can see any single strands hang out the side that means one of the strands is snapped and it's it's a sign if one of the strands is snapped then the rest of the strands will have to take the same weight uh, and they're probably fractured and if it's fractured under the serving you can't see it then you have a problem you can also feel on the on the strings if the serving you know the, that's where it's ro rolled around the string mm -hmm. when the serving if the serving is tight or if it's loose if the serving is loose and you can move it by hand that means the string diameter is shrunk. That means the string is probably stretched, which is one of the signs you might want to restring it at some point. Uh, a stretched string is not necessarily critical, but you got to watch out for it because it can it can be. Let's say I feel like stretched string, you probably lose some of your kinetic energy. You do. You lose brace height, and brace height. Um, if you decrease your brace height, your cam rotation will be less, and therefore your limb flex will be less. So you're probably going to lose a little bit of poundage as well. Uh, then everything is off. With a compound bow, everything is connected. One thing is off, everything is off. So, again, you have to have somebody tune the bow that has done it before <laughs> and can do it to dead center. The bow has to be tuned to dead center. And once it's tuned by a professional to dead center, don't move your arrow wrist because your broadhead's in a different inning in a different place. There's other ways to fix that. But dead center is very important. So, buy, buy a used bow, check the string, check the limbs. See if the cams, if you hold on to the cam, and they'll have a little bit of lateral movement, but you don't want the cams to be moving. There's a few things you can check. I realize this may be a loaded question, asking the question to a bow, someone who makes part of his income through selling bows as a dealer, mm -hmm. but it sounds like by the time you buy a used <coughs> bow and perhaps go through the process, we just talked about how important process was, go through the process to bring that used bow into physical service to where it's going to perform like a new bow, dollars for dollars, you're probably not saving as much as you thought you would. No. No. I uh, handed a bow over to a gentleman yesterday that brought the bow in. He's had the bow for a while. Um, he bought it initially for $250, which is not a lot of money for a bow. It's just an older Hoyt. And um, he came in and the bow still had an overdraw shelf on it and all like the old technology. So I said, look, we're going to bring this bow into 2021, put a drop over it, and you pull that off, and I was explaining to him, and he just stared at me, and no idea what I was talking about. But what I was going to try and do is bring the bow back to technology, let it, and it cost him $250, now looking $500. And I can sell you a bow right now for $550 that is set up, ready to shoot, that's got a lifetime warranty on it, made by Mission. So, And it's adjustable. This bow of his wasn't. The bow I'm talking about can go from... 
25 inches to 31, it can go from 18 or 25 pounds to 70. You don't even need a bow press to change the settings on it. So technology has gone so far ahead now that you have uh, your highest end bows is not adjustable. They are cam specific. But this bow is fine. 70 pounds, arrow flies at 250 or 260 feet per second. It's going to kill a deer. Mine, my recurve does that. So, you know. Um, it's also, very, you got to be careful when a lot of guys want to buy a status symbol. They don't want to buy a bow. They want to buy a status symbol. And I walk in with a recurve and I kill the same deer. My bow cost me at this point. Well, you get recurves as little as $160, as much as 3000 I have one of each. And they can both kill a deer equally dead. So, you know, you got to be careful with status symbol guys as well. But you got to watch out for used bows. You got to be careful for it. And when you buy an older bow and upgrade it, make sure that your upgrades are not going to cost you the same as the price of the old bow and the upgrades. And then you might as well buy a new bow. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you got to, you got to, like I said earlier, I talk, spoke, talked more guys out of buying a bow than buying a bow. Because they come into my shop with a Z7, a really good quality bow. And they want to buy a new one. I'm like, why? You know, this bow will kill the deer. And then the bow's out. I put the bow in the bench and I show them the bow's out. Let me fix your bow. And then you go shoot it on my range. And then you tell me if you want to buy a bow again. And then most of them don't. Back to process. Yeah. yeah. You fix the bow, you know. Guys, go is fine all the time. To the po I've, I've had it to the point that the bow is so far out that the, the person was also became far out. So, the thing <laughs> <laughs> so you got to make sure that the equipment is correct and then... The other piece of the equipment that holds the equipment is correct, and then let the person take an informed decision. Give them a list and say, this is what you really need. You get a thumb release that'll cost you $300, and one that costs you 95 and they both do the same thing. They're both adjustable. Do you really need the $300 one? Then you find out which guy's a status symbol chaser, and this guy's an actual archer. Yeah, that's where you find it. So let me ask you this. How, how often do you need to get a bow tuned? Um, or retuned, I should say. Yeah. What I would suggest what you do is once the bow is tuned and you go to the range, hopefully with the bow tech, and you shoot your grouping. And let's say you shoot, let's talk about 30 yards football size. Yeah. Right? Fair enough. Or you do a five inch, make it, let's say you shoot a five inch group at 30 yards with your bow consistently, right? That bow, that bow is probably tuned right. And the reason you're not getting a two inch group is because your figure eight on your bow hand is messing up. But ever. So. As soon as you start shooting and you can hear something on the bow, people don't always listen to their bows, but if you can hear that weird sound or you see one arrow go or two arrows go and then you shoot more to the left or more to the right, uh, you got to watch out. If you see your one strand off on a, on a, stra on a string, that can affect it. Yeah. Um, then you take your bow into a bow shop and say, look, just to do a, just a quick retune. Right? So there's not like every, you know, say, 400 arrows or whatever no. that it needs to be just if as it yeah i figured it, it, there'd be something like that because all the vibration that's a lot of yeah movement that you, happens in you, you gotta have a bow. a bow work hard a bow has yeah. to work right so if a bow let's say your arrows you 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 want to shoot five grains per pound on okay. average right don't go a little below that because then you're going to shoot a bow with an arrow and you're pretty much dry firing the bow because yeah. the arrow is too light because you want to shoot at 400 feet per second <laughs> and then you have no, no energy but um if you're going to be a target shooter you probably want to tune it more because then the precision shooting is more important yeah and there's a lot of vibration that runs through a bow no matter what arrow race you use so 
where that vibration ends up somewhere and it's affecting something. So then you want to tune it more. Um, if you're going to be a hunter and you start suddenly seeing your, you should practice right through the year, not just two days before hunting season, wake up and realize your string mm. was cut in your box with a, because you put arrows with broadheads in your case and you closed it. And, you know, yeah. These things happen. So practice through the year. If you see your bow starting to veer off consistently, if your bow is grouping really nice at 12 o'clock off your point where you're aiming, that means your shooting is fine and your bow needs work done. Okay. So you just watch where the grouping is. That means your bow. But if your bow starts shooting inconsistent, then you might want to stop and bring it, like, bring it to a bow shop. Okay. So we talked a lot about the bows, <clears throat> the bow itself. Um, but with so many brands on the market, like we covered with the bows, mm -hmm. making essentially the same product, what sets the, the things like sights and stabilizers and rests, et cetera, apart? Customer service and R&D. There are companies who, who manufacture the bows and the stabilizers. I would normally keep that together. Uh, because they put a lot of money into the into the R&D for developing a specific length and weight stabilizer for a specific bow. So that's one thing. The, the materials that it was manufactured from makes a difference. The softness of the rubber, how much vibration it will, it will take up. There's a tremendous amount of vibration. And then you have to have weight on there because you want the bow to tilt and you don't want a bow to, to jump backwards when you shoot it. You want the bow to slightly tilt forward so it, you determine the weight on that, then you can make the bow more stable by adding more weight, but then you have to uh, add more weight in the back as well, not just the front. So eventually you can shoot a bow. If you can hold a 10-pound bow, you're probably going to shoot really accurate because mass wins always. So any wind that blows whatever will have least, a less effect on the bow. So if your lateral and, and um, vertical and lateral stability is there because of weight, then your bow will be more stable, but it'll be physically a very heavy bow to hold, which is mostly target bows, long stabilizers like that. So the stabilizer manufacturers, everybody says their stabilizer is better, and it's obviously it's normal, but you want to you wanna make sure you have, a, like a stabilizer, have a light shaft with a heavy weight at the end. So you have to have a heavy weight at the end on a light shaft far away from the bow because of a five-ounce weight one foot away from the bow will have more effect than a 10 ounce weight against the face of the riser. So that's the difference. That's the distance. That's why you find Olympic bows with 27 inch long rods in the front and maybe <coughs> half a pound in the front. That's what it will do. You have to select. And some stabilizers come out because they look cool. That doesn't help anybody. You want to look at the material, the carbon fiber, the right softness of the rubber. The rubber is about the same softness as the string stop in the back. That's probably a good stabilizer. Um, price doesn't doesn't matter. Price so, what role does that stabilizer play? I mean, you talked about a little bit of weight out front to tilt yes. it. It used to be. I think when I first started shooting a bow, they weren't even made of rubber. They were just a metal rod yes. sticking out the front. Correct. And yeah. now they put their a lot of them are made of rubber and carbon fiber. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the stabilizers give you vertical and lateral stability. So it is like hanging a heavy weight at the bottom tip of the bow. It will want to make the bow pendulum vertical and just hang there. Now, they can't put a weight there because the limb has to move. So how do you change the center of gravity to make it stable enough 
So if you put side rods on there with weights at the end of the side rod, nice and long, and the front, then what you're basically doing is you, you're creating your, your center of gravity is more in the center of the bow. And your lateral stability and vertical stability is more because there's more weight to move. So that the time that it takes the arrow to clear the bow, the bow is pretty much static in the air. It's just for a, for a one fraction of a moment in time, that bow is going to stand like dead still in the center when that arrow clears. And then the bow will do whatever it does. You will see Olympians, they will tilt the bow like this. Just purely, the bow is, they're not actually tilting it, it's falling, but they use a string to keep it in their hand. Because you don't want to hold on to a bow. The bow has to sit in this hand because you're drawing it into the, you don't want to hold the bow at all. If you hold the bow tight, you're going to shoot where the natural position of that hand is. But if you just hold the bow, it stays in your hand because you're drawing into it. Your stabilizers will help you keep the bow stable. As you fire it for that moment in time, the stabilizers will keep the riser in the center nice and quiet so that the arrow can clear. And then the bow will tilt forward. In a lot of hunting cases, it does the same. The bow tilts forward. So your hand is simply a fulcrum. It's yeah. Just a point. Yeah. And, and all the resistance is, it's just is something the drawback. To keep the bow away from your face. It's just that's it. Bow's at the end and gives you more distance on the draw. That's it. That hand does nothing else. So it makes sense where the mass and things play such a uh, the larger the bow is, obviously, the more deadening effect it has mm -hmm. from the physics of the arrow yeah. leaving. And certainly all the stabilizers and the length of stabilizers make sense because you're, you're, you're adding the balance. Correct. But then when you bring all that back into a field situation for a hunter, mm -hmm. um, you said it makes it pretty impractical to be trying to tow it around. No. Yeah, you, can have, you, know, you can have a one-foot stabilizer on a hunting bow. I've set a bunch of them up. One-foot stabilizer with half a pound in the front and then left or right or both sides on the bottom right on the riser you have side rods in most cases they only put one because depending on which side the bow is going to tilt when they shoot some individuals shoot with a quiver on the bow which i wouldn't advise but if you i mean if you practice like that that's fine do whatever makes you happy with your bow what works then you can do that but there's shortcuts to getting a little bit more successful now if you have a stabilizer or a quiver on your bow fully loaded with four or six arrows, you have weight. As soon as you draw your release, that bow's gonna tilt to that side. So you're gonna shoot a little bit to that side. Now, if you can adjust your sights and do and control that tilt, then okay, but it's not that easy. If you hang a stabilizer on the left-hand side to keep the bow in the center, when you fire the shot, there you go. So that's what they do. And I know a, a large amount of hunters that will hunt with the front and, and rear stabilizer on their bows. Absolutely, yeah. I hunted with some guys in, uh, when I lived in Tennessee, and they were big archery hunters. That was mm -hmm. archery year-round. That was the only way to hunt deer, which is not me. I archery hunt because it opens before muzzleloader and rifle does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and but, cheaper. Yeah. But <laughs> they uh, they had the rear stabilizers and all mm -hmm. that jazz, and I I didn't. Yeah. But, a, you want to hit a football at 30 yards. Right. And the bells and whistles will make you hit a smaller football at 30 yards, but still the kill zone. So, you know, uh, a $1,000 bow and a $500 bow is going to kill this deer the same. You're not going to park necessarily uh, an inexperienced shooter shooting a, a $500 mission, for instance, will hit the football at 30 yards. It'll probably give you a really nice three-inch grouping too. Not a problem at all. But they can't go and shoot them against world championships where they shoot 70 yards and they park the arrows in Robin Hood's arrows uh at that distance 50 dollars shafts x10s or something like that. that's what they do so you know there's a difference so to a certain extent 
forgive me, I'm asking questions that may sound like statements. If as an archer or as a hunter, you are going to be the person, and be honest with yourself, you're going to be the person that's not going to start practicing until the week before opening day. Mm-hmm. It's probably not worth necessarily stepping up to the quality and the features that you're going to require to be able to drive the tack then at mm. 50 yards. Because even though the bow is set up to do that, you as the archer aren't doing the things that are necessary to be able to Correct. maximize the value yes. in your purchase. Yeah. So if you're, if you're going to be the, and, and I probably would fall into this group, I'd imagine the person that's going to usually just hunt archery up till the opening of muzzleloader season, mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily worth running running the gambit. No, no. You you well, you want to practice as often as possible. You want to, for various reasons, obviously to stay on top of the thing, but also to make the bow work all the time. So you want to find out. You want to find out a week more than a week before you your season that your bow is off. Or that there's something wrong on the boat that you want to be careful about. Um, so you want to practice as often as you possibly can. Make sure your equipment is that you're on top of your equipment all the time, even when it's not hunting season. Because even if you do it two weeks before or three weeks before, everybody is doing it, and you have a limited availability of of Botex and bow shops and then equipment. With COVID, we had a lot of shutdowns in, in Korea, where a lot of the archery and our stuff is made. <clears throat> and that caused a huge void and right when hunting season hit. So we had incredible delays on. So if you don't have your stuff ready in March, April, May, June, and you're running out in September or whatever for turkey season or something, and you're not ready, that's pretty much self-inflicted pain. It, it keeps going back to process. Yes. you got to <laughs> practice all year. That's right. Be proactive. Get your stuff out in advance. Know where you are, where you are at all times. Yep. Mean, I was exaggerating, you, by the way. It wouldn't be a week before, but yeah, the reality yeah. is I wouldn't be nearly as diligent in... Oh, you'll be surprised how many do it two days before. Well, I'm in the business. They stand a line out the door. They want that string done now. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. Most of your practice and in, in to continue practicing is to keep up your instinct. Yes. <clears throat> because bow hunting and your distances, knowing your distance is instinct versus technique or your bow... Mm. You've got to keep up that instinct of knowing, okay, I, that's, that's 25 yards, that's 30 yards, that's 20 yards. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the practice and practice and practice, I mean, I can I can leave my bow sitting in the case for a year and pull it out and hit a, pie pa- a, a, you know, a paper plate at mm-hmm. 20 yards mm-hmm. or a football at 20 yards mm-hmm. and, and be good. But it's the instinct of when you're in the woods – you know, that, that deer's not going to come out at 20 yards. It's going to be 25. It's going to be 30. It's going to be 32. Yeah, you've got to so, limit the time. Yeah, your your instinct is mm. a big, big, big part of, of... You can buy yourself a very expensive rangefinder, but that takes two or three or four more seconds. That's right. If you have the and instinct that's movement. guess that distance and you can pick up that bow and send it, um, you're going to be ahead of the game. You're With bow hunting, it's it's movement. The deer's yeah. that close, they, the deer can pick up movement. Yeah, right so, now, and it's gone. Yep. Yeah. So I've seen a here in the recent years has become a big thing. It actually it seemed like it came around about the time that the pendulum sight died. Mm-hmm. Was the fact that they they started having the adjustable single pin sights? Mm-hmm. What are the advantages and disadvantages of shooting an adjustable single pin over a multi pin sight? Yeah, the pendulum 
the beginning of the equation, the pendulum is very much alive, but for some reason, a certain part of the population use the pendulum. And I've been in business 12 years now, and there's a certain group of individuals that continue to use the pendulum. And uh, they make the new ones, and I've sold them the new one, but it's only these individuals that use those. And it's the Mexican hunters. They use the pendulum site. And they are dead on with that site. They will kill that hog or deer every single time. Oh, they're accurate. Very good. They yeah. love the pendulum. And the pendulum is... I personally would use a single pin or a uh, multi-pin. I shoot instinctive recurve, so I don't use any sights. But if you use the single pin, it is... It limits your your capacity as far as shot placement because and timing. So if you roam, you definitely don't want to use a single pin. But if you're gonna sit in a tree stand and you have you you shooting you're shooting over bait, then single pin is fine. And it's about the same issue as we had with the dis, with the um, rangefinder. That extra second that you just undo and slide up to 30 yards because suddenly the deer is at 30 it's not at 25 anymore that could be the time that you need it in order to send that arrow so a multi-pin will give you every multi-pin site has every site pin has three aim points now i teach that in hunting class as well you have a teardrop you have dead on and you have a lollipop and that basically means where is your site pin based on the point of impact so if you uh, if you as let's say your sight pin is set at 20 yards and you a deer comes out and you've got a single pin a deer comes out at 30 you can teardrop that point of impact so you're going to make you put your sight pin on top of the area you want to hit good chance you're going to get into the kill zone right if it's at 20 yards put your sight pin on your kill zone depending on what the deer is doing if the deer is alert it's a different steel a different deal if you if the deer is close 10 yards you want to Lollipop that. So you want to put your sight pin under your point of impact. So on a single pin, you pretty much have three aim, aim points, which would give you just enough to get into the kill zone. If you have a multi-pin, you can go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. Now, very few people hunt over 40, which it's already become risky. And I can be shot down in flames because I said that, but I don't care. And m most hunting shots are between 10 and 30 max. 35, some of them, but over 40, very few people hit at 40. So how many pins you need? You need three pins on a multi-pin. Single pin, you have to have the adjustment, time, or hunt over uh, a feeder or bait. And then you set it at that distance, boom, that's it. And it comes in at that distance and you shoot them. That's enough. Target acquisition is nice. A single pin is only single pin. So there's a lot of visibility around it. Multi-pin sites have... Sometimes some individuals have said this, it's clogging. There's too much in, going on in the front. Uh, it's personal preference, but your fast, your faster shooter will be a multi-pin. I, I know a lot of people that actually set on a multi-pin, they'll set their first pin at 20. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do as well. I said 90% of the pins at 20. And if the deer comes in at 15, lollipop it. That's it's yeah. all I tell them. Put it below it and hit them. Because you are still climbing at that point, so you're going to be good. 20, 30, and 40. Three pins is all you need. And you're only going to use two. Chances are you're never going to use that third pin. I'll say even if you come, even if one comes out at 40, then you just teardrop it. Correct. Or, or 50. Just yeah, teardrop it. Go to your third one, teardrop it. That's it. And then good chance you're going to get into the kill zone. You know, 
there's not always time to to guess. That's the whole thing. You gotta be. You're gonna send that arrow out fast. That's where the instinct comes in. Yeah, you gotta know. Okay, that deer is this distance. I'm gonna teardrop it and send it. If I miss, I miss. Chances are you're gonna hit. So, it's a yeah. The instinct. And if you shoot your bow on a regular basis, basically what you were saying. If you shoot your bow on a regular basis, you you learn to react faster and acquire your target faster and put that pin on there faster. So at that point, a single pin could work very well for you. Could be perfectly fine. Let's so say yeah, because then if you shoot it regularly and you use a forty-yard pin, your deer comes out at fifty. You should already know where that forty-yard pin is going to hit at fifty. Correct. Hopefully, you've been at my range and you've shot at my distances and you've practiced it. What if? Because chances are Murphy's law. What if's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. So you want to stand there and. What is it? What does it do? I've got a big target. It's a safe environment. You come up, you there's 40 yard pin. I don't have another pin. What happens when I put it on the blue? Let's go a foot high and see what. That's how you learn how to shoot. On my back of my shirt. Just shoot. Just shoot. <laughs> Just shoot. So all you gotta. You wanna learn archery? Shoot the bow. You know, get a proper bow, get a proper training, and just shoot the bow. The Wilhelm brothers had no form to speak of whatsoever, and the one brother was hitting dice off his brother's head at 20 yards with an instinctive recurve bow with zero form so if enough practice your brain will figure out whatever angle it needs to jordan you trust me no <laughs> me either <laughs> no. No. well he, he could use an apple yeah, i don't even trust him with an apple <laughs> go with a watermelon yeah. i might trust him with like one of those really big beach balls <laughs> that's about it so going back to you mentioned 40 yards and longer shots um, I assume that one of the biggest things that comes into play when you're talking about distant shots is a, is is both efficacy and efficacy. Mm. Efficacy being that no matter, even if you spend all the time in the world shooting at 40 and longer, the reality is, is even if you were dead nuts when you let the arrow go, your target isn't, it's moving. It yeah. is picked up on the sound, the movement, mm. as I understand, even the sound of the wind moving through the fletchings. It's 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 starting to move. Is that a big reason why you would not advocate, or is it is it does it come down to the efficacy portion, where the arrow is losing velocity, so it's losing the kinetic energy and mm. you're losing momentum, or is it a combination of both? Or where, where yeah. do you, where do you place most of your emphasis in the That's, thought? Pretty much a combination of both because there are archers that I personally know that will put a sight pin on a deer at 80 yards and drop him. Out of a 70-pound Matthews V3 or whatever, they will drop him because they can place it at a dead center where it needs to be. 125-grain tip and they can lob it up and put it right there it needs to be. And the question is now, was that the efficacy of the equipment? Perfectly fine and did the job. The ethical side of it depends on the person. And I would prefer that the archer that holds the equipment, when he draws that bow and intends to send that arrow, he has to decide if it's ethical for him as a person, not for his neighbor or the other guy, because the other guy might actually be able to drop that deer at 80 yards, not a problem. But is it ethical for me to take that shot? Is that deer going to stand still long enough? Um, if he is, depending again, that's another issue completely, the, how the deer is reacting should change your ethics in a certain sense. This deer is alert. He's looking for the girls. They're around here. 
and I'm in the mood and I want to go and get one. So he's going to be alert. So you have to always, you aim in a different spot, for instance. If in my case, uh, instinctive recurve shooter, I'm going to aim in a different place. And I shoot a 70-pound recurve. That bow shoots an arrow 220 feet per second, which is fast for a recurve. But I'm going to aim in a different place. So I will take an, an ethical and shot with my bow at 30 yards on that deer, no doubt about it. But my neighbor can't do that. You might be able to do that at 80. So that's a decision that the archer has to take for himself and then live with the consequences of it. Because once you've wounded a deer and you've tracked him for two days and you find him half eaten by a coyote but still alive, you'll, you'll change. It will change you. You know, if you are an ethical, decent human being, it will change you. Um, so that decision you have to take for yourself as an archer. You have to know that it was the right one. So we've talked a lot about sights and your uh, stabilizers and the bow and everything and your arrows. But I feel like one of the biggest arguments I see between bow hunters, broadheads. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that will tell you, oh, mechanicals are junk. They open in air. And then there's people that will tell you that fixed broadheads are junk because they don't fly right. It's all true. It's all true. It depends on the person, the bow, the type of broadhead you used for that specific bow with that speed and that kinetic energy. That could all change. Um, everything 100% is shot placement. If you shoot a deer with a field point right through the left ventricle of his heart, he's not going to run 30 yards. He's going to bleed out. As a, I would say I'm pretty much uninformed on broadheads right i just i kind of fell into the uh status quo of it essentially and wants to put a rage in the cage i would say (laughs) i I bought i shoot i shoot rage extremes and i've honestly never had i've heard people tell me that rages are junk but i've never had other than the fact that i know if i shoot that rage i'm gonna have to completely rebuild that broadhead Mm -hmm. i gotta go buy new blades buy a new tip for it but other than that i've never i've never had any problem with losing a deer no. Or a pig shooting it with a rage strain. If you have to rebuild a broadhead because you got 100 pounds of deer in your freezer, it's perfectly fine, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's it's personal choice. And then one thing the industry is absolutely flooded with is solutions to problems that do not exist. <laughs> <laughs> and they do that in order it to... It makes s- them money. To do, yeah, they have to make money to stay in business. And we want them to stay in business. I haven't forged broadheads for a long time, and I don't intend on doing it anytime soon. So they got to stay in business. So you have a situation where rage will give you a huge cut. I do leather work, so I don't want to see big holes cut through animals but because I want to use the leather. But if, if it works for you, use it. I have seen rages come apart, just like I've seen a lot of other mechanical broadheads come apart. I have seen... Montec G5 solid broadheads break blades off. So, uh, yes, there's there's an open field of it. One of the best broadheads that ever existed was a Zwicky. It's one of the first ones that ever came out. I still use them. Now they make a Zwicky, No Mercy, and all kinds of... But it is a solid blade. And solid blades act like airplane wings when you shoot it. So you got to make sure if you have a single bevel or double bevel that your fletching is put accordingly so that you can have the same spin. Otherwise, your arrow will start corkscrewing down the road. So, Muzzy makes a vented broadhead. Muzzy is probably the best-selling broadhead in the world, and there's a reason for it. Um, 
they spin. Like Toxic makes the fixed blades with it looks like three forty-four slugs that cuts through. Um, I've never seen deer drop faster than when they were shot by the Toxic because it cuts a channel right through whatever it hits. So that's the bleeding out speed is phenomenal. But it's a fixed blade. It will fly like it's on rails. So um, you have to go to a bow shop and say, I'd like to test broadheads. What, what's your opinion? Hopefully the individual is not sponsored by one of them and he can give you an honest opinion. Or in my case, open a whole box of broadheads and say, let's go to the range. Yeah. Shoot them. So continuing on the topic of broadheads, two blade or three blade? Or, you know, people make four blades. Yeah, they make so, four blades. They make, uh, I've seen a five blade, solid blade. Um, they cut more. A twenty-two will kill a elk. There is a doornail if you hit him in the heart. So <laughs> it's shot placement. Everything is about that shot placement. Now, if you send a two-blade or a three-blade or a four-blade through the lungs, he's going to bleed out, maybe in 25-yard increments. You know, based on that, it's all shot placement. And like I said in the beginning, if you shoot a deer with a field point, you are less intelligent than most individuals that walks on this earth. But it's been done, and it's not smart. And hopefully you get jailed for it. But you put a broadhead on there, where it's a two or a three blade, if it makes, you, if you practice with that broadhead and it hits within two inches from your field point when you shoot, you can use that broadhead. The weight, if I'm going to go shoot a brown bear or a grizzly, I'm probably going to use 150 grain broadhead in the front there with some extra weight. If I'm going to shoot a Florida whitetail dog-sized deer, I'm going to use 100 <laughs> grain. So... You have to choose and then go to the range and practice and see how it flies. Don't put your money down on the table because every time you put your money down, you vote. So everybody buys the newest, baddest advertisement on TV and they either come apart or they can't hit the broadside of a barn. It might not even be the broadhead's fault, but either way. So you got to be very careful to not get infected by this solution to a problem that doesn't exist. It's all shot placement. It's all shot placement. G5 is good. Rage is good. Grim Reaper is good. Um, it's all shot placement. And then... It just depends on how good you are. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't use them because I use a recurve. I shoot fixed blade. So I could use it. I and mean, my recurve shoots at, like I said, 220 feet per second. So I could probably use a fixed blade, but I just don't. I just choose to use... I mean, a mechanical. I choose to use a fixed blade. It's personal choice. And then where are you going to put that arrow? That's very important. How once you get past placement, we, we, we earlier we mentioned velocity and mm. kinetic energy versus momentum. Mm-hmm. I would think that the broadheads then, depending on what you have, that the mechanicals they, they're using more energy just to open than a fixed blade, right? So I would think that there's got to be a trade-off as far as penetration. It's basically equal. The, it's basically really? equal because you have your broadhead opening on impact and then cutting, uh, whereas your fixed blade will have the friction on the way do, on the way to the animal, to, and then when it hits, it also has to cut. So, it's it's pretty much six of one and half a dozen of the other. It's they're very close. The fixed the the mechanicals always tend to have less tuning problems because they're basically small like a field point, so they'll fly pretty good. Um, whereas a fixed blade, you might have to do some tuning on it in order to get it to fly right. But you have to be 
you have to decide what you want to shoot. And if you're going to shoot a set, 50 pounds, anything above 40 pounds, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't really make, you can choose the broad and shoot it because you're going to have an arrow flying 250 feet per second and it's going to cut deep enough and hard enough. You won't have an issue. So I know like when I was a younger and my bow was at a lighter like draw weight, mm -hmm. my arrows didn't pass through. Yeah. Right. They stayed in, but I've always kind of thought like, Am I better off to have an arrow that stays in? Because as he runs through the bush, that broadhead's just slicing and dicing Correct. everything. Mm -hmm. Yep, that could be an advantage. You know, if you shoot a uh, $25 shaft, then, you know, you might want to pass through that deer, but because he's going to fall on it and bend it or whatever yeah. the case may be, or break it. But um, yeah, it's, it's if you get a, a stick or a pass through, hog you want to pass through. If you can, because it's just more more cutting. Um, that's pretty much a light. As long as you go over over, well, they say Florida. I think it's thirty pounds is the minimum. I wouldn't hunt it unless it's at least forty. But your penetration of your arrow, as long as you can get into the vitals, you have to get in there. And it's very much like you say. You he runs and that arrow cuts him up like in the old days with the atlatl and the mammoth. It's inside him and it keeps cutting as he's running. You know. Um, yeah, there's advantages to that, absolutely. You all, there's also advantages to pass-throughs. You know, if you have a... I've seen a, a video of a deer that was hit with a 75-pound Matthews V3 that you could see the dust puff off the whole body when that arrow hit him. He dropped on the spot like he was shot with a rifle. So that energy, that hydraulic, that's also... There's another issue there. Um, if you have one that sticks, you've got to be very careful not to hit shoulder blades or ribs because it might not actually penetrate deep enough. I was going to say one of the big advantages you're seeing from a pass-through, you talked about the mammoth and all that. A mammoth would probably, I would assume, be fairly easy to find because they're really large. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they will yeah. bleed like a bath full of blood. Yes. Yeah, a pass-through, uh, you have two yeah, exits. You have, in two yeah. Most of the time, you. shooting from a tree stand, you have a lower exit point and you do an entry point, and they, yeah. you have a easier, a better blood trail from a, a yeah, pass-through. Yeah, and then you can look at the arrow, the color of the blood. If it's really light pinkish, it's probably a long shot. If it's hard, darker, you know, you can get a good idea. Pass-through will give you a lot of information. I was thinking that you'd, you'd probably, I don't know, but I think just you'd want, I can't get the words out. I'd vote for pass-through only for the simple standpoint that, you know, if in first aid, any time that somebody has a, they've been impaled, mm -hmm. one of the reasons, in fact, probably the overriding reason that you don't remove the object because it bleeds. Is because Steamer. of blood loss. Correct. That's one of the reasons the toxic shoots so well because it shoots a channel right through. So there's a channel that can bleed both sides. Yeah. So if you use a Zwicky, like I said in the old days, one of the first broadheads, it will cut the vein off, but the vein would still be there in a certain sense. It will still bleed out, but it could pass through some blood. So you'd have 50 yards more to go and search for your deer. Like you get stabbed and they draw the knife out. Now you bleed. So, yes, if you get a sticker and it's in the heart, it's going to run for a while. It's going to run for a while. You know, if you pass it right through, there's a whole different deal. Yeah. Pass through is, is I agree with you, pass through is better. So, I've seen it come up on social media quite a bit where people have... Uh, they'll damage an arrow mm -hmm. on the range or in the field or whatever, whether they shot it into a tree 
or they busted the top of it uh, with another arrow grouping it on a target or mm-hmm. whatever. In the event that I think I might have damaged an arrow, uh, what's the best thing to do with that arrow? You lay the the knock of the arrow in your finger, your index, and you lay the tip, that only the tip touches the flat surface, and you roll that arrow. You roll it over, over 360 degrees. You keep rolling it. and you Don't push so down that you break it, but, I mean, most carbon arrows can bend quite substantially. You just roll it, put some pressure on it, and roll it. If that arrow is fractured in any way, it'll snap. It'll break right there. Now, if it doesn't do that, doesn't mean it's good. Now, look at the front, see if there's any cracks behind the insert, and then look at the back and see if there's any cracks in front of the knock. Now, if there's arrows cracked, I would probably wouldn't use it again. If it's a low pound, it's 25 pound practice recurve, it's just fine. Just glue that knock in the next time and you can practice with it. It's not an issue. But if you're going to shoot 50 pound, 60 pound compound bows, replace the arrow. There, there's a lot of violence happening behind that arrow when you release it. Correct. Yeah. It, it's there's, there's 70 pounds punching that arrow and it's trying to get out of the way. And it's only, there's only one way to go and that's forward. And then you stop at that quick with a target in the front. It could be a tree, which is hopefully not, but uh, the the carbon is incredibly strong in order not to just shatter when it hits something else. Um, there's a few arrows that some customers of mine have shot Robin Hoods with, and very easily a 70-pound bow will punch one foot into another arrow. I've got proof of one of them standing there, uh, and it was a really high-end arrow, and the other arrow slid one, one foot into it. You know, sometimes that's obvious, this, and nobody takes them apart. Those hang on the wall. But that one that you're not sure of, and you heard the contact when you shot the target, you heard the contact, you're not sure, roll them. Roll them on the table. Put some pressure on it. Roll it on the table. Paint that arrow slightly so you can see. And I had it last week. I rolled one and snapped right in front of me. And it was in snapped close to the front, and close to the FOC of the arrow. It didn't even show that there was a crack. I didn't see anything. That carbon was hiding at all, but there was a fracture inside it, and it snapped. I feel like that kind of comes back to is keeping a full-length arrow, right? Because if you bust it by the insert, like you said, you can cut an inch or two off of it, and you're still repair it. Yep, good to go. Just save yourself ten bucks. Yep. Yeah, I thought I thought Robin Hoods were cool at one point until so I started shot shooting lighting knock lighted knocks stuff like that. And you shoot one, and you're like, yeah, there's sixty bucks. Yep, <laughs> yeah. that can get real expensive. <laughs> yep, you start shooting X10 Pro Tours for competition, and you hit that arrow. That's a hundred and ten dollar arrow. <laughs> so you don't want to know. Yeah, you. Yeah, that could be expensive. So on the subject of like damaging arrows, if I damage the fletchings on my arrow, is it worth refletching the arrow or? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Fletching is going to cost you, on my side, we charge about $4, depending on the type of fletch you use. I prefer to use fletches at work, so they cost a little more, but it's about $4. Um, and it's better than paying 10 and then having it fletched for 14 So, yeah, it could definitely be repaired. Yeah, so how important is the rest, and what kind of rest do you recommend for somebody? Compound... I really am biased as hell. I like QAD because it supports an arrow for four inches and it drops out the way. There's no contact with that arrow. It's a clear. I mean, it's just QAD is, a, is flawless. That I've, I've put QADs on bows 12 years ago and they still work as new as, as they were brand new. But um, the like a whisker biscuit will work for beginners use a whisker biscuit qad will cost you anything from 70 to 125 to 200 dollars yeah because it's got a name on it but 
solutions to problems that don't exist, right? But <laughs> uh, I like QAD, I like dropover rests. Uh, there's some individuals that like Amskia, fine, but it's personal preference. Yeah. But the, from drop away to, to biscuit, there's a difference there. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, the type, not necessarily yeah. a brand, but the type but of The biscuit will slow down about three foot per second. Speed only kills in a car. Yeah. So, but it'll slow down a little bit. That's true. Uh, and it can wear out as you shoot it. So now all of a sudden, as the arrow pushes to the sides. Yeah, you're bending those fibers. Correct. Yeah. Now, you know, you might not get that football at 30 yards. Yeah. It's possible. Sometimes you see, it's the first thing I look at is if a bow comes in for service with a biscuit, is which side is the biscuit worn out? And I already know which side that bows out. I already know. Yeah. I put it in, I adjust yeah. immediately. And I immediately convince the guy to put a drop away on. But so a biscuit is 42, <laughs> 45 bucks. And you have to replace them depending on how many. But I would say if you shoot a thousand arrows through a biscuit, you probably gonna need to replace it. Yeah. Even if I tune the bow to dead center, it's going to it's going it's to still, hit the sides. Even if you wore out that one side of it there, it's still yeah. gonna slide to that it's side. It's gonna bounce off the sides and you're gonna pay another forty two dollars and another forty two. If you gave me seventy in the beginning, you wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. Yeah. Biscuit is nice. Then you get the different types. You get the hostage, which is three packs of hair, mm -hmm. which makes no contact with the fletches, but it still makes contact with the shaft. Yeah. And you can see the way that it's worn out. It's it's worn out wrong. And therefore the arrow is inconsistent. It's coming yeah. out of the inconsistent. You don't want anything to touch the arrow. You take an FMJ and you shoot it slow motion through and through a QAD, you'll see it literally four inches. Support the arrow and then it's gone. And then that yeah. arrow comes out no contact. So it's that's your cleanest shot. So you basically want as little contact with the rest as you shoot. Yeah. Well, see, I know I have like a, a hostage on mine, but mine actually has I can replace just yeah. the like the hairs yeah in mine absolutely you can replace that yeah if it's the higher end hostages you can actually move uh you can replace those yeah and it's fine it works just fine if it works for you that's fine Once i'd I like to switch to a drop away i just haven't I actually shoot a uh a diamond razor edge which yeah i got when i was like 15 i think mm -hmm. he so, hasn't grown much yeah <laughs> well it's adjust fully adjustable yeah. so yeah. i've been able to adjust it as I, that's why i got it when i was younger which it probably needs tuned and everything. So yeah, well, you know, you know a guy. Yeah, has it, <laughs> has it ever been tuned? No. So it <laughs> probably does need to be probably tuned. probably needs a serious tune. Yeah, <laughs> if it's not, yeah, just bring it over. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna talk you into a drop away. I tell you that right now. Because and and it's not just. I make the same percentage on either one, as in dollars, almost exactly the same. But if I put the drop away on and you start shooting it and you get really love this drop away next time i'll give you advice you can take it and you're going to come to my bus my shop and you know i'm trying to get the people to come back because i'm going to tell them the truth and honest sometimes they don't like it i don't, you know, don't care but i'm trying to get the people to understand that don't ask me about a thousand dollar gps site because <laughs> it doesn't solve anything learn to shoot yeah so that that's a great segue i hope a lot of our conversation this evening is focused about gear. Yeah. But I, I would imagine the gear is not where you start when someone walks into your shop with a cursory interest into archery and says, take me out on the range. Where do I start? Yes. Oh. Where, where as an instructor do you start? Love where's, that. Where's the, where's the fundamental, There's where's two the sides. foundation? There's two sides. I've walked away from about as many as I've taken to the range. 
walk in, they say, I want the best bow, best arrows, best this, all right, can I help you? That's it. I'm not selling the guy a single thing. Not, not with integrity, you can't do it. Guy comes in and he says, I'd like to learn archery, what do I do? What's my next step? I love them because I will take him to the range, I'll put him on a recurve bow, find out which eye is dominant, give him an intro introductory class, charge him the 50 bucks, he's going to save himself a fortune in the future, teach him how to do this, and then say, so did you like what you did? Yes. Are you going to hunt? Or are you going to shoot target? Now let's start determining what bow to build for this guy. Do I build him a compound? Do I build him a recurve? Which one do I build him target? Was it for hunting? So then you have somebody that you can basically mold, and you can mold the bow to that person, and you have an archer for life. An archer for life. And they're also the ones that really do want to learn. They're not status hunters. Status hunter wants the best of everything. And uh, like I said, I've walked away from most of them. I'm just, sorry, can't help you. Can't do it. I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to do it. So it, it starts with when you have that Skill. fresh piece of clay, you start them with Skill. stance. Correct. Gotcha. F skill, build the foundation from there. Up. Nothing can replace skill. How do you? So okay, let's take the next step. Guy grabbed a bow, borrowed a friend's, been thinking around with it for a couple of years, got somewhat proficient with it because, as you said, if you practice enough, you'll figure it out. Your your mm -hmm. brain will adjust. Then comes in and says, "Make me better." Mm -hmm. You, I assume, take him outside. Yep. He lobs a few down range, and you go. Good Lord, how do you even hit the target? Yeah, it happens often. That happens often. What do you do then? you got to break 99% of their habits. If it's a compound bow, I immediately put them on a recurve bow. Completely different. Dark room, that's it. They don't have no clue. So you start from scratch. Because uh, a, a large number of internet-educated archery professionals have no idea what they're actually talking about. And that's the problem. And some of them end up in big box stores selling bows to people. What you don't, what you want is you want somebody that has the experience to take a guy out there and say, okay, look, you just, you were able to hit the block. Now, do you really want to hit the center of the block? And then either demonstrate it or tweak something and say, all right, let's, I want to make sure that it's actually the bow's fault, right? So then I put the bow on the vice and I tune the bow. Now, I have him right there, and I say, look, this is what your bow is doing. It's shooting left, this is why. And I fix that, and I take him back to the range. Now I've got one piece of equipment sorted out. Now I take the other piece of equipment and say, all right, now, stand like this. Put your feet in an angle. Don't stand in line. Lock your knees. Keep your hips in the same line. Twist your shoulders towards your target so you have a torque in your core, and you explain why every time. Why? Okay, now send an arrow down, and another, and another. Third arrow, hooked, because now they're grouping like that. So there's two pieces of equipment, but I have to fix the hard equipment first. Hmm. Oh, well, the hard equipment's not the, not the bow. No. That's you. That's right. the bow. Yeah, yeah. Say, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. You hard mentioned tuning the, tuning the bow first, and then it's like, no, the person's yeah. obviously the... Yeah, I got to take that one and fix that piece of equipment, yeah. because if I can't marry those two and match them, no, it's not going to work. Have you ever had a customer um, with an obvious error on <coughs> their part just absolutely refuse to fix it and want to blame the... the, oh. the Hard equipment? <laughs> Three times a week. <laughs> Three times a week, yep. Yeah, same thing happens. Put it on the vise. Show them what the tuning is about. It's pretty easy to understand when you put pendulum and everything on it. Laser if necessary, and you show them. And you take them back out there and say, okay, so 
your equipment is fine. You are not, and this is why. And then try and change it, but there's you got a 50-50 chance. Habits are hard to break. Yes, and not just that. They they may have been in contact with a different coach at a different bow shop that was, was a money exchange system that what blowed, that blamed everything but the archer. So they believe him because they don't want to be blamed. And I, they come to me and I say, well, you don't know what you're doing. Let me, t- let me fix this. I can help you. And I want to hear that. No, no, it's the equipment. Okay. Buy new equipment. Okay. Yeah. No, it makes sense. In my, in my youth one. Skill. Anytime you're doing anything athletically and you start to have success and you hire a coach who sees the flaws, like you're, you're a 7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. But to get you to eight, you're unfortunately going to step back to a five. Correct. Yes. And yes. it's so frustrating because mm. you're having to overcome all the muscle, not just in certain cases, muscle memory, but literally you've built muscles to compensate for flaws. Mm-hmm. And now you have to build muscles to compensate for, for the muscles, muscles that, you, that built. you built to compensate <laughs> for the flaw. <laughs> yeah. and, and it takes so much time and then and then there's all the 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 eye hand coordination and things like that so yeah i mean psychologically it's none of us like to fail Mm -hmm. can't be me take a take a it would just be so much easier if it was the bow correct take a hunter um how many arrows in a hunting scenario counts just one one. yep so you're going to shoot in a season maybe a dozen arrows in a season one at a time or it's a hell of a season correct right You shooting squirrels? <laughs> so he does he does everything wrong, but he hits his target, hundred percent. He comes to the range and he's coming to practice, and I see it and I try to fix it, and he's kicking against it because I can hit what I shoot at. Sure, with one arrow, shoot a hundred. Then now let's see here by arrow twenty five, they can't even hit the block, and they're like, how do I fix that? Okay, now we can talk. <laughs> now you fix that, and now he can shoot twenty five arrows consistently. So. He goes out on a hunting scenario. He gets an elk to hunt. It's a big deal. He looks for the elk for five days, finally sees it. The buck fever hits him, but that adrenaline doesn't affect him anymore because the habit that he's learned just now is to shoot properly. It's like trying to shoot uh, uh, an elk with arrow number 200 after you've practiced with 99 or 199 arrows. That's what it is. So you want to make sure that that cold bore shot is the same at number one and number 199. And you do that by teaching the proper biomechanical habits. Make it a habit to hit. I feel like a lot of this, like when we're talking about, you know, your habits is, to me, I, it just keeps coming back to me. It's like going to take your driver's test with having never driven a car. Yeah. It's exactly. like driving through Alabama. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, and that happens, actually. You do, you see that. Uh People can get a tag to hunt and they have no qualification whatsoever. That weapon is as dangerous as a rifle, in some cases worse, um, and they don't need any training. If they don't have this responsibility as a decent ethical, what we were talking about, I'm going to go learn how to do this before I'm going out there hunting. Not everybody is like that. There's about a 50-50 split of internet geniuses and actual people who've done the work. There's a big difference in the two. Yeah, well, I saw it on YouTube. and Yeah, well, I was going to say, I know, like, as a kid, (laughs) me and Will had the first same first bow, but the first bow that our dad ever gave us was a recurve. Yeah, And we shot and shot and shot and shot that recurve. Yep. I don't know how many times before we were ever allowed to get a compound. 
Correct, because it teaches you, taught you stability in your hand because a recurve is the most unforgiving piece of equipment you'll ever have in your hand. Will, can you remember the first animal you killed with a recurve? Was it a crow? It was a crow, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Completely by accident. We'll yeah. save shot that for funny right stories. The, we shot it right in the butt. <laughs> there you go. It's the best place for him anyway. Yeah, I don't like crows, but the, Jim uh, will change your mind on that. Trust me. Yeah. No. What he's saying is uh, they're they're actually, despite how they look, and they're actually very, they're very good eating. Incredi- Tasty. Oh, they're incredibly intelligent too. Yeah. Oh yeah. They know. No, it's um, a, a recurve bow is the best bow to start with. The best. When the, uh, one of the former uh, USA senior champion compound bow shooters, his name is Roy Peters, and uh, I was his coach, and he would practice with a compound bow or with a recurve half hour, compound half hour. And if he refuses, his scores come down when he shoots his compound because I shoot at 360, 36 arrows, scores come down. Use the recurve before to practice, and then, yep, then his scores are high. So is that – okay. Sorry, I'm going back to practical things. As an example, years ago, we went to South Dakota to knock over prairie dogs. And I took both a 22-250 bolt-action rifle, mm-hmm. and I took I took an, an AR, which is, is not the same standard of rifle, but it was pretty well dialed up AR. Mm-hmm. But what I found, when I was shooting the bolt-action rifle, because... In this case, because you you have to delay, you you shoot, there's the action of Mm. having to, you know, as opposed to, Mm. I noticed that my my accuracy, just for the fact that I couldn't take an immediate follow-up shot, was overwhelmingly better with the bolt-action rifle. Well, there's various reasons. That's one of them. Well, I I understand the mechanics, too, and things like that. Gas loading and, yeah. I felt like um, you took more time. Yeah, you had to make it count. And yep. I was thinking in terms of to try the parallelism with the with the recurve. Mm-hmm. Is it because you don't have all of the help from the compound? Yeah, it's not that it is forcing you to focus entirely on everything all at once at mm-hmm. the moment that you let that shot go. Mm-hmm. That if you practice with the recurve, all of that we're going to talk about muscle memory. Memory, memory, all of that then comes with you back to the compound yeah. bow. Is that why it improves so much? If you see in the, some cases the fear that overcome a guy when you take the compound, lay down, and put a recurve in his hand, oh, it's because it's so foreign. So that focus immediately comes into play. Now they want to perform. So they focus really well. And then they realize every time they shoot, the bow will slap them if they don't do it right because there's no, there's no forgiving, nothing. A, bow, a recurve bow shoot exactly where it's pointed. And they learn that hand stability, that left hand or right hand, whichever <coughs> shooter you are, excuse me, depending, because that will teach you stability. And the moment you take that stability back to the compound bow, you'll drive tax. Fact. Every you, time. You, your, your instinct with the recurve, you're, <coughs> you're tuning that instinct, you're sharpening that instinct mm-hmm. that makes you more, um, more accurate. Stable. It makes you, it encourages you. So when you pull that compound, if you've been shooting that recurve and you're shooting that recurve and you're hitting it and you're like, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on. Mm-hmm. I got the instinct is there. Mm-hmm. Um, the rhythm. And yeah. That and so when you there. grab that compound, 
you know, man, I was shooting that with my recurve. And breathing, breathing, breathing. Yeah. Anchor, oh, yeah. Let the air flow out slowly, like that 22 to 50 shot at 300 yards. Same thing. Archery, same thing. Inhale, anchor, exhale, but slowly, just let it flow. And then you put your finger on the trigger, squeeze it off like you would. Same thing. There's no difference. Do it with a recurve and then go back to the compound. Pull that instinct in there. So yeah. I need to buy a recurve. <laughs> well, if you don't already own You can one, use Rylands. Yeah. It almost sounds as though you, you need the recurve. And then going back to your practicing throughout the year, mm. you want to spend most of your time on the recurve. Yeah. You want right? to. Yes. And then and then you, you finish up your last couple of arrows with the compound. Mm-hmm. And maybe then if you're going to go out in the field with the compound because of all the other you I mean the confidence is I want all that I want all those advantages. You want to reassure you know? that your bow is still in tune by shooting your compound. Well, yeah, and like you said, if you're hunting over a feeder, you're knowing what the you're knowing your distance. You know your distance. Fixed distance. You're shooting with a recurve, or if you go to your compound, if you've got that confidence that you have the instinct right pull the compound it's it's i've had less th- movement less yeah i don't know if it's 20 or 25 mm. uh, if 30%. you've been shooting with that recurve you're just going to pull that compound it's 25 yards 30 percent of my compound hunters that i put on recurves to practice with end up hunting with the recurve they change the limbs 50 pounds on one hunt with that recurve because the satisfaction that you get from hitting it with the recurve and no and no assistance is... Oh, because it's harder. Yeah. A lot more skill involved. I mean, sure. Hooked. I feel like that brings us... It's kind of totally off subject to bows, but when we had the Red Riders, we were shooting lizards. <laughs> like, <laughs> we just stopped using sights because we, like, instinctively knew where that BB was going to go. Like, yeah. That's what I mean. That's it. Satisfaction is twice as high. Yeah. Nothing. Me and the stick and the string, and there it is. You it's can't beat priceless. the satisfaction of shooting deer with a bow. No. You can't beat it. Nope. It's person. It's more personal. It's more of a... You get closer. Yeah, it's more... You're more of a, a prey mm. at that point. It's a whole lot more to brag about. Predator. <laughs> or predator, sorry. Yeah. yeah. You are... That close proximity does something. You see the color of the white around the eye. You see that that close proximity is priceless That's plus then you get this. to hear that what yes you know it's the whole thing about i think hunters versus non-hunters and i don't know why but i'm convinced that there are people that just don't for whatever reason the predatory instinct it's just not there you no. know I've, I've i've taken people out that thought that they wanted to hunt and they go through all the process and then they do it and it was just like not what they thought it would be. I checked it off, and now I'm yeah. off to the next thing. And there's other folks that are kind of like, yeah, I'll go try that out. And, man, right, yeah. once it happens. The addiction begins. begins. You yeah. know, it's just, whew, you can't get away from it. Hunters are the most ethical meat eaters on the planet. Sure. Involved in the whole step of the process. Yeah. Rifle, bow, doesn't matter. They're the most ethical. If you have deer... Numbers falling in one area, open hunting. People are like, why would you mean? Why would you want to kill more deer? Well, they don't. Now they start managing them. Yeah. Because the hunters mm-hmm. want to kill more deer, so they're now going to manage them. They're going to plant food. They're going to put water there. Before you know it, there's an over... Like tigers is now in a, there's under endangered species. All they need to do is figure out how to cook it that it tastes really good. And <laughs> six years, <laughs> in six years, you can have an overpopulation yeah. of tigers. You'd be Just leave the feed on them. 
Yeah. yeah. I was are, look at Africa in the places that they banned hunting and Yeah. I mean the poachers went in there and just smashed them. Correct. They're all gone. But when they've uh, in it's the places cool. where they've they're charging I mean how much is it to go out and shoot a rhinoceros right now? Something stupid. Holy oh, cow. Yeah. More than any of us in this room can yeah. afford. And yeah. elephants, I mean, I've I've heard tales of actually a gentleman in, in South Africa who's got a relatively large rhino preserve that when they when they do catch poachers out there, there's Glass they, they have they have their own version of the law. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. like Somebody might find himself with a rod run through his temples, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to treat mm. for a couple of days. But, yeah. Poaching is that, a class one. That kind of yeah. runs to like you know two episodes back where we talked about poaching. Your hunter, yeah, one. your hunters yeah. manage your population. Your hunters, um, you you have a sustainable population yeah. once you start to hunt. The deer starts looking better. They eat better. They breed more. Just yeah. hunters are very ethical meat eaters. No, yeah. I mean it's it's funny about that. Like you go up to Georgia and you can take. Was it two bucks and nine does? And it's been that way forever. Now, they've got an awful lot of ag fields and things like that that are helping. Sharecropping does it, yeah. Right. But then on top of all of that, you got guys out there running corn feeders. So after the crops have been stripped and after in the, in the, in the wintertime when all the acorns are gone, crops are gone, there's no green, lushy stuff for them to eat. Right? I don't know about you guys, but if you're running a corn feeder – when are the bucks out there in broad daylight, man? January, mm-hmm. February, March are just yeah. in there mowing it down, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Where so they, the starvation period following the rut, isn't 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 as great. And of course, the does are in there whacking it too. So we've, it doesn't seem like they're ever going to get away from the two bucks nine does standard because the population's just not coming down. Yeah. So I kind of want to hear some. You know, we've heard of. Uh, people you've turned down and stuff. I kind of want to hear some funny stories from you from, you know, the range or the woods or. Um, yeah, I've <laughs> got a few. <laughs> I, th- I think we struck his funny bone. Yeah. I've seen, uh, I've, um, in my time in archery as a, as a business owner and as a coach, uh, I've had in really uh, interesting experiences with, with students and with, with hunters um, where, uh, in one situation, it, we, it, we touched on that earlier. We don't change equipment just before shooting. We just don't. Right before hunting, before competition, you just don't change equipment. And you don't practice the day before. You just stay away. And uh, we had one of our, one of my compound uh, competitors is a very, very good archer. He's, he, was, uh, he was really good. He was coming up very quickly in this in the scores and uh, everybody started noticing he was pretty good and uh, he's he's always been looking for this one specific site for his bow and uh, he <laughs> yeah the day before the competition I, I normally go through to my students on the, the day of the competition because I I have a business to run and I have other students to coach so that specific day I'll be off and I'll be there for the competition time and then I'll leave and uh, I arrived and noticed the sight on his bow was changed and i was like why did you change the sight in your bow i was like this one is better i'm like really what what and i'm talking 30 minutes before the competition actually starts now this guy has two warm-up ends to shoot and then he has to start competing uh (laughs) he changed the sight on his bow he changed his release uh 
I get up behind him when he gets on the line and he's going to shoot at practice end. He draws the bow back, hits the trigger, dry fires the bow, snaps the string, right? So now there's a problem. So they, they thankfully for him, they stopped the line. So they stopped the line, <laughs> takes the bow to the, to the local mobile bow tech there. Uh, he restrings the bow for him. It's, it was a very fairly new bow that they could carry strings like that on the location at the time. Put new strings on everything else. Now the, the string is fresh. The peep side is going to twist. Uh, I can give you four pages of what can go wrong now. And believe me, Murphy hit him like a freight train because everything went wrong that day. Next end gets up on the line. They restart the thing. He shoots his next practice end, skips an arrow off the top, sends it about 25, about 30 yards through the air. It skipped off the top of a target. The moment you skip an arrow, it picks up energy, right? So now this thing is flying like the space shuttle. <laughs> Takes off goes into the woods and actually hits a 3D deer <laughs> in the kill zone <laughs> with a with a $110 X10 Pro Tour, which was at that point about 80 yards from the original spot where we were supposed to be shooting. Did they send him home with the deer? Uh, well, the, I, I told him that if he doesn't go home now, I am going to go home. Because <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. It was so funny, and every, and the fact that everybody was so decent and nice about it, and nobody would laugh. And I'm like, these guys are trying to explode right now, and they're trying to hold it back. And this poor man, everything went wrong. Absolutely everything went wrong. I had another gentleman that uh, the day before the hunt went and bought himself a new tree stand, and um, nice and relaxing, was showing me all this fancy armrests and everything that this tree stand is on because <laughs> and um gets into the tree stand calls the deer in deer comes too close comes leans in brand new bow leans in too closer and closer and deer won't stop eventually quack, and deer stops sends it and the, the limb hits the tree stand arm this nice comfortable armrest hit it right on the armrest um and snap the, the, the left side the limb snap the left limb the whole boat basically came apart on his first hunt with his $1,600 Matthews only because he was too close to the tree stand. Don't change things before you yeah, don't do it. Go practice first. And there's so many stories. Uh, I've had a gentleman put a hole in a semi-truck tire once in a parking lot with uh, an Olympic recurve, but it was barebow. So barebow is basically an Olympic recurve without stabilizers and anything, and no sights. And they do string walking. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and they walk down the string to lift the angel of the arrow and shoot. But, and he was testing, trying to find out where, should, where he should move his hand to in order to hit. And he fired the shot, and there's a parking lot about 30 yards behind the range. After the ballistic sheets, there was a creek and trees and everything else he shot that arrow it skipped the wind blew up like that the arrow came and skipped right under there jumped off the ground went through the trees didn't hit a single branch go <laughs> through the trees over two very high-end fishing boats over the two fishing boats came down and punched on in the tractor trailer tire a michelin <laughs> oh no <laughs> I ended up paying for the tire, but I was just happy he didn't hit the boats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he didn't hit a person. Yeah. It's, um, oh, I've seen some, some things. Uh, one if specific individual in my original range went and bought his arrows at Walmart, 
And you know what happens at Walmart is kids walk with their parents through the gun section and the sporting section. And they play with all the arrows. And they play with the arrows. And then the daddy says, put the arrows back. And then they put the arrows back. But now they put a 45, 60 arrow in the 85, 70, and vice versa. <laughs> and the guys buy arrows there. They look on the box. All right, this is for a 70 pound bow. Bought the arrows. Came to my range and I looked at the arrows and I said, please don't shoot them. I will go and get you my personal arrows. You can use mine. I know you're excited. It's a new bow. Hold on one second. Turn around, work to my office, came around the corner. He was in full draw with one of his own arrows. Squeezed the trigger off. Put the arrow through his arm here. <laughs> and the arrow went in the single hole, then separated the carbon. Ooh. And it came out the other side like that. Ooh. The other piece hit the bow, went straight up in the air. And as he's standing there like this, came down and cut his eye open. Jeez. Uh, if it could happen, it probably would. Um, and you know those things it, that wasn't a funny situation at all but I banned him from the range permanently after that he was never allowed on my range again um, we don't want accidents like that on your USA archery record so I've got endless stories so I got a guy that actually hit a water line under the water when he was bow fishing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that'd be my luck <laughs> yep. put a hole in the water line I didn't, nobody knew there was a waterline in this position. I, I, how would he have known that? But anyway, he was shooting, bow fishing for tilapia with a 65-pound uh, compound bow. Oh, Lord. Jeez, why do you need that much fur? <laughs> That's go way too high. Pounds, yeah. If you go over 30 pounds, what are you doing? Shooting whales? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, put a hole in the waterline and this thing. There's the municipalities and there's people, maintenance out there. And yeah, it's, ignorance is, couldn't be dangerous. In this sport, especially. So I'll tell you one of the funnest things I think I've done with a bow <coughs> uh, over the years was I don't I don't remember where I got the idea. I'm pretty sure I saw it on the Outdoor Channel at like one in the morning one night. But we had a spot we used to go gig frogs, or we attempted to gig frogs. I knew this was coming, and <laughs> you couldn't get close enough with a ten foot gig pole for they disappeared into the ditch. Mm -hmm. So, and I saw a guy shoot a frog with a recurve bow, and I was like, oh, light bulb. Mm -hmm. went and got some glow knocks some small game heads it, yeah it's like the the little like grass tips that you screw behind your field point yeah, yeah. thumpers yeah oh, we call them thumpers yeah well these actually screw on behind a field point yes and they work well oh yeah yeah they work great on bullfrogs <laughs> yeah they work well <laughs> rabbits too and we would uh yes i know that too done that before <laughs> but we would ride around the bed of a truck with a spotlight shining down into the ditch and just Pinning them to one side of the ditch, drive around the other side of the ditch, pick the arrows pick up, them pin up. them back to the other side. Kebabs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fill up five-gallon buckets mm. full of frogs in the back you know, of the truck. It was probably actually extremely unsafe, but I do remember at one point that we were cutting the insert out of arrows, and then we would fill the arrow with black powder. Terrible idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and put a primer on the end of it. Just quit giving people And then electric tape a BB mm. to the primer. And when you shot stuff, the air would explode. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't know if it worked until you did it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll go ahead and edit that one out yeah. for somebody to get some bad ideas. But <laughs> don't do that at home. That is not advised. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's shooting those frogs was just an absolute blast. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And I mean, I've shot I've shot quite a bit of small game frogs. I used to shoot a bunch of rabbits. We had a bunch of rabbits around our house in Kentucky when I lived up there, and I've all the time shooting rabbits with a bow mm -hmm. that yeah. was just so the neighbors wouldn't hear you that's good <laughs> yeah that too <laughs> that's good food rabbits good oh absolutely absolutely 
But that was, man, seemed like every afternoon you come home to be four or five in the, in the, the empty lot next to our house. So it was racing mm-hmm. the house, grab the bow, sneak back outside, shoot one with that. And then uh, it, I found a, uh, I get a lot of enjoyment out of shooting targets at distances that you wouldn't mm-hmm. even think about taking game. That's a quite a challenge. Mm-hmm. That's oh, yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. 80, 90, 100 yards. Yeah. I saw a guy shoot balloons at 110 yards of the compound. And uh, I don't know if the if the video was edited, but he was hitting them consistently. He must have been practicing a lot. But he'd put a dozen balloons up and he would send them and he would just pop them. And I think that's a great amount of fun. It's really good. He was doing it on an open field. wasn't putting anybody in danger, teaching himself obscene amounts of hand stability at 100 yards. <laughs> and yeah, that's fine. It's good enough. You, Lars Anderson shoots flying plates out of the sky. Uh, Byron Ferguson, if he can see it, he can hit it. Literally, even yeah. water drops. So, you know, if you're having fun with what you're doing, you're doing it safely, nothing wrong with that. And that's that's I know I saw a guy on social media somewhere the other day shoot a target at like 300 yards with a bow mm. and it looked like he was trying to shoot, shoot the sun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it Some did. of that I think is edited. You know, they see those guys. Yeah. It was a straight, the, the well, yeah, I would say it was a straight, it was just one straight video where he just kind of aimed up and shot and you could see his arrow. It's clout. It's actually a sport. Yeah. It's clout. Hmm. It's a sport. They will use English longbow, the war bows, 100-pound war bows. And they'd lay a target flat, 150 yards away, flat on the ground, and put a pole like a, a f- flat pole for the golf. Yeah. You, you your so greenies. you can know where it's at. Yeah, where the bullseye is. It stands right in the bullseye, and they would send an arrow up there and uh, shooting at angles. And they shoot at angles. They send that arrow straight up in the sky, and they drop it on the target, and they score it. It's called clout. Mm-hmm. It's a hell of a sport. You can remember there's wind blowing, but yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Very interesting. But when you start practicing at long ranges like that 100, 100 yards or so, when you're coming back to 30 yards and you, you get consistent at 100 yards, yep. 30 yards is a chip shot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's when you. That's when I step up behind you and I say, keep shooting. I sell arrows over here because then you start breaking arrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got method in the madness. Yes. Yeah. Well, before we let you go, let's tell everybody where they can find you, how they can come to your pro shop, shoot at your, um, shoot at your range. and I'm online at uh, centralfloridaarchery.net. It's not .com. An uh, individual in Pakistan decided they need .com more. Uh, so it's centralfloridaarchery.net. And then you can also find me on Facebook on the Central Florida Archery and Hunting Club. Um, the property that I'm on is an agricultural property, so we also do some hunting teaching there. So it's Central Florida Archery and Hunting Club. And then... Um, the addresses for the shop is on there as well as for the range is both on there. The distances, five yards to 80 or 100 if you're feeling lucky. Um, you can shoot anything there, crossbow, compound recurve, atlatl, do them all. And uh, by the end of September, I'll have the tomahawk range up. And if all goes well, November, we'll have the 3D walkthrough up as well. So all right. I feel like we're kind of... We almost stepped past our uh, tip of the week, even though we've had a well, ton of tips yeah, you, throughout the uh, the podcast. So I was hoping y'all forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of every episode, we'd like to do the Under Pressure Outdoors tip of the week, and I'll go ahead and lead that one off and say, because uh, I actually wrote mine down <laughs> as we're Sucker. going along. Uh, we talked about ranging and knowing distances and all that practice, and something I found that's helped me over the years is when I get into um, – especially hunting on public land you get into it it's a it could be a different spot every day um but i would i would get up there and pull my rangefinder out and then find either notable things on the ground like a fallen tree or a log you know, something like that and arrange it 
so that I know that is 35 yards. Hmm. So you can look judge distance from that piece, you know, 10, 20, 30 yards out. And then as the deer move through on trails, you're watching, you can wait for them to reach your benchmarks that you've mentally placed out there in range beforehand, before you take a shot. Yeah. Um, I'm for the halfway mark. Right. Find your halfway mark, tie it. And this is going to sound really weird. But if you know the size of a 55-gallon drum compared to most other things, and there's not a man that I know know that does not know how big a 55-gallon drum, they can pretty much point out spot on when they lift their hand, it's about that high. And most of them are almost dead accurate in comparison to a 55-gallon drum sitting at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 yards. They'll almost tell you exactly the distance. If they assume what they're shooting at, is a 55-gallon drum. How big do you think that would be compared to that the tree that fall over right next to it? Chances are they're within about 10 yards, which is an inch up or down on vertical miss hmm. or hit. A 55-gallon drum of all things. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and say it's been said over and over and over in the podcast. So I'm going to reiterate. Practice, practice, practice. Don't be that guy that goes out there and shoots your bow the week before season and says good to go yeah no you're gonna win deer uh no practice trust your first instinct mm-hmm. don't second guess yep that is if you word. second guess you should have shot the first <laughs> your <laughs> gut your gut's normally always yep. right fact yep fact guy named malcolm gladwell wrote a whole book on that called blink it's actually a good read it doesn't talk about hunting but all the principles in there but how your brain, whether you know anything about art or not, most people can look at a piece of art and be like, something wrong with that. Mm. Right? Same with hunting. Mm. My, uh, my tip of the week is actually a little bit more practical. Um, I store a four-wheeler up in Georgia all year, and inevitably, after a long layoff, i got to go up there with a trickle charger or worse, jumper cables and spend some time charging up the battery before I can start it. So got to thinking, it's a 12-volt battery. Got a 12-volt chart, 12-volt solar panel, same thing that you use to run your cameras or whatnot, pair of alligator clips, problem solved. So for all of you that are storing equipment out in the field, uh, you don't need to get too complicated, man. Just one of those, uh, the same 12-volt, you know, panels that you can, you could even buy the Wild Game Innovations one and it still works. I'll say they sell them at Walmart specifically for yeah. charging. Mm. oh really batteries yeah you oh, can buy it's like me. a little it's like a little uh 12 by like eight solar panel and it's got gator clips on it mm. yeah, trickle, trickle charger yeah they work well yeah mm. i think i've probably got nine bucks in the mine mm. but no mass mm. dead battery briar yeah. mine I'm, I'm gonna circle back around one that i've recycled and i recently made this mistake even though it's always it's been my tip of the week several times always bring toilet paper <laughs> I don't care what you're doing if you're going out away and you know there's not a bring toilet paper that's a good one I mean <laughs> or extra socks I, yeah I was gonna say I can't tell you how many times I've been grateful that I've actually remembered to have it in the boat so yeah. shirt sleeves work great too mm, I'd rather keep my shirts on <laughs> on the water on the, on the water I'll just use the water <laughs> nature's bidet that's yeah. right <laughs> Rick what's your tip of the week if it doesn't feel right, don't do it. If you're not sure about that shot, don't take it. Um, you'll know. Everybody knows. If you don't feel right, if you don't, don't do it. If you draw that bow back, let it down. If 
you're not sure, just let it down. If it's not the deer that you wanted, don't take it. And if it's the best one in the group, don't take it. It's probably the breeder. You know, but uh, yeah, if it doesn't feel right, don't take it. Well, we'll make sure to take those those links you gave us and put them down in the podcast description so that uh, you can find Central Florida Archery. And if you're lucky enough when you come to our pig roast next weekend to win the Obsession Bow we're giving away, you can take Actually, it right on. by the time it comes out, it'll be this weekend. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. If you come to the pig roast this weekend and win the Obsession Bow that we're giving away to help benefit uh, Operation Outdoors Freedom, then you can go right over Central Florida Archery and have them set it up for you. Get yeah. some time on the range with it. Get you some arrows because we don't have arrows to give you or release. But we have a sight and a rest and a bow. So. For that cause, I will do the tuning and the, the range time on the house. And uh, all they can do is do the bring the arrows or I'll sell them some arrows. But the timing, the, the tuning and the range time is on the house. There Perfect. There you go. Take your bow. Take Another your prize. obsession that you've just won down to Central Florida Archery. Get it tuned and get your training for free. There you go. Good Can't work. beat that. I mean, I know we just talked about practice, 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 but you're literally winning a bow just in time for bow season. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to tell you don't go hunt, yeah. but you need to He's practice you the every training, single day yeah. until you get the chance to Come out to there. Go. Let me teach you how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The right way. Yes. Right. Well, I, Rick, I really appreciate you joining us. It's been very informative. Thank appreciate you. The Absolutely. Thank, Thank you very you. much. It was nice being here with you guys. It's been great. We'll see you guys Saturday. Catch you next week.